As you open your Bible to the book of Jude, which is where we will be today, we'll center our time there. Let me kind of give you a background to this passage via my own personal struggle. In fact, I would say that the struggle that I have, this constant tension that I try to balance, is something common to most pastors. I would say all of our elders, uh, there are pastors with me, they would share this. I think other pastors and churches in our city and metro area would, would share this. And that is the constant tension between protecting the flock, guarding the sheep, and and doing that with clarity and conviction, which typically pastors are pretty good at, <laughs> and yet balancing that with compassion for the very people that you at times find yourself contending with. Could, the, could an elder in this room kind of nod their head and say, Todd, we're with you on that, right? In other words, trying to balance the mission we're on with the mercy of God. Does that make sense? Standing for truth, guarding it, fighting the wolves, and yet knowing that we're not fighting the sheep. We are protecting the sheep and loving the sheep. And sometimes it's hard to know how to do both of those well. Martin Luther understood this well. He wrote this in one of his books. He said, we're to fight vigorously against the wolves, but on behalf of the sheep not against them. And sometimes we as pastors, we are fighting the wolves and sometimes that bleeds over and you think we're fighting you and we're really not, but we're dead set on making sure that we don't miss a single truth. And I think some of that balancing of mission and mercy is in the mind of Jude as he writes about the false teachers who were infiltrating and had already infiltrated uh, their area. And yet, at the same time, he writes towards the end that he wants them to show mercy to these very people. He's balancing this, this protecting of the flock with this idea that at the same time, we want to be people who have a sense of, of reaching out. How do you do that and how does that work when you know, you're, you're trying to be on mission and yet show mercy? So with that kind of in the background, with that struggle that I think a lot of pastors deal with, and possibly even members as well, I want you to hear the book of Jude at one sitting. Dan's going to come read it for us. Then I'm going to kind of walk you through it, answer a few questions, tell you about some of the resources I think will help us. And our goal today is that we will understand how we can contend for the faith, be on mission, while at the same time being merciful and compassionate. A hard balance, no doubt, but one I think Jude will help us with. So Dan, would you come read the epistle of Jude for us? We'll all follow along with you. Here's the reading of God's word for today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the justice of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam to error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by, sanctif- by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So 25 verses. Thank you, Dan. 25 verses that deal a good bit with false teachers and standing against them and contending for the faith. And yet 25 verses that conclude with a note about compassion and mercy. Today I want to answer... Um, four questions that I think will 
kind of unpack this text for us. They're journalistic questions. Steve, you'll like this part. We're going to answer the who, what, why, and then the how question. But I think you'll see that this will be the flow in which Jude kind of operates. Uh, I won't take any questions live today. If you have some, feel free to text them in. I'm going to try to save our time, and I'll answer those uh, in writing this week. But feel free to text them in, but I'm not going to do them live. I want us to make sure we have time to finish some important things in here. Also, I'm not going to be able to cover every single aspect within this book. There's a number of things here that raise questions, I'm sure. As Dan read through that, you probably thought about these angels who are reserved in darkness. You probably thought about this idea of, of uh, maybe Moses and his body and Michael the archangel. We've released a podcast today, and it was about maybe 45 minutes long. And it was myself, Pastor Chris, Pastor Carlos, and then our intern, Tamora. We're, we're kind of sitting around a table discussing about four or five of these difficult issues. We knew we couldn't get to all of them today, so it's going to be released today. Uh, I would just encourage you, as soon as you're out of the service, you're going to download that. You'll listen to it on our website. It'd be a great way to kind of catch up on things that I won't be able to cover in the text. I'll look mainly to the primary theme of the book. But there's some really good conversation in that podcast and some different views and, and perspectives on some of these issues in the book as well. Let's answer our questions, can we, and see what Jude is trying to say to us as a, in a larger way. First of all, Jude is the author. That will be the who question. You see that in verse 1. I think it's interesting to note, though, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He's, looked at, he's um, called here the brother of James, as you know. It's, it's very likely and highly probable that Jude is one of the last of the um, family of Jesus to come to faith. Typically, Jude and James are the ones who, after the resurrection, that's when they finally believed. They didn't believe all along. They were probably very skeptical, which may be one of the reasons Jude shows such compassion to people like that. He mentioned toward the end of the book, to those who are doubting, were to show compassion. I think he may have thought of himself like, wow. I know what that feels like. I know what that's like to, to, to be so close to something and yet not really believe, to be skeptical. So this is Jude, the one who now is a confident, firm believer. He's writing to those who are called. They're loved in God. They're kept for Christ. Do you see verse 1, the end of that? There's three types of descriptions. Do you see that? We're called beloved in God, kept for Christ, and we're called. Do you see that? Now, you'll notice that that's the beginning of what is often several threesomes, we'll call it. There are sets of three throughout the book. It's not the only thing he does, but there are a number of things that he lists in threes throughout the book. And I'd encourage you as a small group or even on your own to go through there and just notice some of them. Here's a few that I've noticed. There's some in verse 1. There's some in verse 2, verses 5 through 7, verse 11. There's one in verse 8, verse 19, and verse 25. There's two sets of three. It's kind of a neat way that you can kind of see some of the themes that Jude is bringing out to us. Of course, you see in verse 2, it's mercy, peace, and love. So this is who Jude is. He's the writer, he's the author, and he writes for this reason, beginning in verse 3. Follow along with me. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, he's doing this because he realizes that something is more urgent than his first thought. What was his first thought? It's back in verse 3 as well. I was going to write to you. He was eager, he says, to write to you about our common salvation. The, the ambiance of this verse is this. I mean, I was going to write to you a letter that just really uh, would be gloriously delightful about God's work on our behalf. It's common to all of us, and I was eager to talk about it, to write to you. 
But something pressing seems to have occurred. Something more urgent now is on the scene. And he says, so I found it necessary. You see that contrasted with eager? One's like, wow, man, this would have been a a great joy. But I'm now going to write to you something that's more necessary. And it's this idea of, of contending for the faith. The word contend there means to agonize, to struggle. It's the word used to describe athletes in a competition. He says here, the most necessary thing that he needs to write about now is to contend for the faith. That means the body of beliefs, the orthodox theological doctrine that was once for all delivered to the saints. We would know that as what God has now uh, included and wrapped up in what we call the canon or the Bible. At that point, before the New Testament was complete, it was through the apostles, that apostolic authority to speak for God as the prophets. But this is what they're contending for. The body of beliefs once for all delivered to the saints. Why is it necessary that Jude write about this and encourage them to agonize and struggle and in one sense to fight for it? Stand up for it. Have conviction about it. Let there be clarity about what is right and what is wrong. It's because, and here's the why. We've seen the who, the what. Here's the why. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, let me just give you some, uh, some um, let me give you a hint about Bible study. He's, he's going to spend a good bit of time describing these people. But don't miss the succinctness and clarity of this phrase. He's writing because there are certain people who've crept in unnoticed. That's the simplest, uh, shortest way to say, you know what? You have been infiltrated by false teachers. You're going to see later in this book that he reminds them that this was actually predicted by the apostles. He's probably referring to Peter's second letter in which Peter seems to have somewhat of a future tense about his predictions. He says, false teachers are coming. Paul seemed to say this in Acts 20, that from among your own number, false teachers will arise. He used the word wolves, by the way, in Acts 20. Jude, though, uses a very present tense situation, doesn't he? He says, hey, this is going on. So it kind of helps us date the book of Jude and to realize the progression of what was happening in the early church. Peter and Paul both knew it was on the horizon, even from men among their own number. Jude says it's now happening. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Can I just push pause here and say this to you? And I, I could camp here for a few weeks, but I don't need to. But false teachers, they don't come in with a, with a red neon sign that says, false doctrine, watch out, alert, alert. That doesn't happen. They come in in an unnoticed fashion whether it be in this case, it was in person. We know there were those who wrote false letters as well. But they come in disguising themselves, preaching things that are close to truth, but not really truth. And they appeal to you relationally, and they make promises no one can keep. And by the end of the day, you've hardly noticed that you've, you've really, you really like them, but something doesn't set well with you, but you're not sure what it is. And And it's just a very subtle, conniving type of work. 
I, I think you need to be aware of this. It happens in our culture too. False teachers don't come in honking their horn, okay? Watch out! I'm looking to crash into you! That's not what's happening. It's very subtle, very deceitful, very selfish. And, and so can you get a glimpse into the balancing act that a lot of pastors deal with? Because we know this, we are on guard. I mean, I'll be very frank with you. I, I care for your souls, our elders. We care for your souls. We don't want you to be misled, of, led astray, deceived. And so we watch. We wonder what you're reading and what you're listening to and who you're following. We look at what they're saying and teaching and preaching. We analyze and we look. Why? Because we care for your souls. We're not trying to investigate in an odd way. We're not trying to be a nose in your business in a, in a, in a cranky fashion. But there is a lot at stake here. And Jude says he's felt, he has felt it necessary now to write because there are certain people, by the way, they're ungodly people, they're false and they're selfish. He'll describe them. But there are certain people who've crept in unnoticed. And though they may be unnoticed in the current situation, I love the way this contrasts here. Look at verse 4. They've crept in unnoticed to you is kind of the point, but long ago they were designated for condemnation. In other words, they weren't unnoticed to God. They may be privately making their way in like a snake, but God knows full well what they're up to, and He has designated them for condemnation. They're ungodly people. And here's what these people who have crept in unnoticed, who were designated for condemnation, here's what they're doing. Two main things. Pervert God's grace and deny God's Son. Do you see that in verse 4? They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So they take a license with God's grace. And so the result is immorality, just fornication, adultery, sexual freedom outside of the boundaries of God's word. And then they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they pervert God's grace and deny God's son. The second part of this is probably very similar to 2 John, uh, in which the Gnostics were trying to deny that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. In other words, he wasn't real. Uh, Akin to that would be this. If his body wasn't real then your body's not real. And if your body's not real, then it doesn't matter what you do with it. So just have fun with it. Does that make sense? That's kind of the, the connection there. They would say, well, Jesus Christ and his body, that's, that's not really God among us. He's not who he said he was. He didn't come in the flesh. And their, their belief was that that, there, that that was not an evil issue. And your body is the same way. It's not an evil issue. So do what you want to with it. God doesn't care. And so that would translate into sexual immorality, licentiousness. So do you, see the connection, do, you, do you see the connection between their doctrine and their behavior? They were denying Christ and perverting grace. These are the certain people who were crept in unnoticed. He begins now to kind of lay out more about these people. In fact, from verses 5 till I believe the end of verse 18, he describes them in intense fashion. I won't go through all of their descriptions. That would take several weeks again. I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. But I would draw your attention to three thi- uh, two ways Jude does this. 
he first of all attests that they will be punished. He kind of goes back to this phrase, designated for their condemnation. Do you see that? He gives three examples of God's sure punishment to those who were unbelievers, to those who, uh, who rebelled against His authority. Look what he says, verses 5 through 7. Here's a set of three, by the way. He says, There were a people who came out of Egypt, but afterward they did not believe. They were punished. There were angels who did not stay under their, uh, their right authority. They rebelled. They were punished. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. They, did, they rebelled. They were engaged in sexual immorality. They were punished. Do you see the set of three there? If you take those three examples, uh, Israelites angels and Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, it's three examples of folks who, though it seemed like, for instance, they may have been getting away with what they were doing, the truth is they did experience punishment for their wrong, which is exactly what he promised in verse 4. He says these folks were designated for this condemnation. So it's, it's almost like Judah saying, They've crept in unnoticed, but don't worry. God has noticed. God's got it written down. And just as He has kept His promise to take care of unbelievers in the past, He will do it with these people as well. So He makes a statement here that their punishment is sure. Let me flip that coin over. In other words, God's got this. We should be on alert. We should be careful and and looking to situations. It's not to call for laziness in us, but let's be sure. They may have crept in unnoticed to us, but they are not unnoticed to God. And they will be punished. He then mentions three people later as a way to kind of describe these false teachers. Beginning in verse 8, he talks about how they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme glorious ones. By the way, there's three things there in verse 8. They defile flesh, reject authority, blaspheme glorious ones. Those are three descriptions of these false teachers, these certain people that have crept in. He talks about how basically they go in the way of Cain. You see that in verse 11. For the sake of gain to Balaam's era, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. So Cain, Balaam, and Korah are three other examples used to describe false teachers. Let's pause there for a minute and think about those three examples. Cain was one who... Basically said, I'm gonna, I don't have any desire to submit to God. His authority doesn't matter in my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. He says, my worship wasn't acceptable, but I don't care. I'll kill the one that he said did worship acceptably. So Cain was a proud. All these people, by the way, are examples of pride and the unwillingness to submit to authority, which is one of the descriptions of these false teachers. So Cain said, no to God. I'll do it my way. Balaam was the same way. Balaam had God's truth, was going to deliver it, but he changed it for the sake of money. Greed got the best of him, and he led Israel into idolatry, immorality. And the same thing with Korah. Korah withstood God's leaders, i.e. Moses. So here's three examples of people who refused to be submissive to God's truth, God's leaders, God's word, God's call, and showed pride and self-will This is what false teachers are like. They're they're people who have one agenda in mind, their own. And they're going to get their way at all costs. It will happen slowly, but it will happen, at least in their mind, surely. It will happen destructively and selfishly, 
But in the end, they will not get away with it. Here's how Jude describes the beginning of verse 12. He gives us those three examples of certain punishment, these three examples of kind of their character. Now look at verse 12, how he kind of describes them. This is very interesting. These, by the way, the word these, you could track the word these throughout the epistle. It begins in verse 4 with the phrase certain people. They've crept in. You can go down to verse 8 where it says these people. You can go to verse 10 where it says these people. Verse 11 uses the word they. Verse 12, it says these. Verse 14, these. Verse 16, these. Verse 19, these. He's talking about these false teachers. What are they like? He says in verse 12, they're hidden reefs or blemishes, uh, spots, sick areas. They're hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. More than likely a reference here to communion. This will give you the, um, I hope, hope this gives you the sense of, of how um, unnoticed they were, how deeply they had infiltrated. They were even partaking in, in, in their observance of communion. And it says here, without fear. They didn't have any sense of hesitation. They weren't worried. No doubt this body of believers probably had read what Paul said to Corinth, that if you approach the Lord's table, which in that church, in that culture, first century, typically there was more of a love feast, they would call it. It's more of a meal. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see some of this. Paul warned that if you partake of that in a way that's unworthy, you could drink to yourself and eat to yourself God's judgment, of which it may actually be that he would take you home. I mean, they weren't even afraid of any of this. So they're, they're infiltrated at a level that's even among the communion table. They're shepherds feeding themselves. What an oxymoron. A shepherd's goal is to do what? Feed the sheep. <laughs> and this is a, a wonderful contrast to what Peter describes as true shepherds in 1 Peter 5. He says they must willingly serve and their main task is to feed the sheep. Jude, which by the way, mirrors Peter a lot. He says these shepherds feed themselves. It's just the height of selfishness, arrogance, rebellion, pride. They're waterless clouds. They're swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid autumn. Man, this is really building, isn't it? He's just really uh, getting after them. They're twice dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So again, they appear on the, on, the, on, the, on the surface at the moment to really be wreaking havoc. But God's aware of it. And they will not end the church. Are they a danger and a threat? Yes. But will they be the downfall of it? No. God will take care of His church. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, and again, here he talks more about the sure punishment coming up. Notice in verses 14 through 16, the number of times he uses the word ungodly. This is a, a, the, the, uh, the use of repetition. If we did this ourselves, you'd probably laugh. Like, man, Todd, you've said that word four times already. But Jude here is trying to make a point. They're opposite of God. They may sound one way, but all of their actions and what their end goal is, is opposite of God. Look what he says. He says, the Lord's coming to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly 
of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. That's like a Webster's definition, isn't it? What is ungodliness? It's ungodly people. Like, well, we knew that. What do they do? Ungodly things. I mean, you can kind of get frustrated with that kind of definition thing, you know, in the dictionary. But Jude's doing it. He's like, hey, God's going to take care of ungodly people who persist in ungodliness in an ungodly way. You can just see his, his passion coming out. They're opposite God. They're not like God. And yet they've infiltrated even to the point of observing your love feast with you. These are grumblers, verse 16 says, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Again, selfishness rules the day. Pride is the, is the protocol. This is, the, this is the situation that caused Jude in verse 3 to say, I wanted and was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to just glorify and rejoice with you about God's work for us. But instead, there's something more needful. I need to ask you to agonize and struggle and fight for the faith. And after you read that description, do you see why now? That's a... This is not a a nice scenario going on, is it? There are folks who have infiltrated at a deep level. And Jude says, I I realize this. I I need you to be willing to struggle for the body of beliefs once delivered. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that grace has a right to determine our actions. Let me just push pause again. I think I pushed unpause, but I'll push pause again. And say this to you, by way of application, before we get into the, the how part. You can, one of the key ways to spot false teachers, no matter how um, nice they sound, is check out their morality. You got that? Check out their morality and check out their theology about Jesus. Anyone, any group, any preacher who changes God's standards when it comes to sexuality, man, red flags should go up. All right? Now, if you think that's, well, Todd, that seems like uh, obvious. Well, look in our culture. What is the one thing consistently trying to be changed? It's sexual standards you're raising your children those of you with kids you're raising your children in a culture that is consistently adamantly trying to change God's sexual standards they also want to they, they want to mess with and change a theology about Jesus who he was and why he came my guess is they're not going to deny him outright. History would prove them otherwise. There are a few like that. But for the most part, there's historical works from Josephus, the current writers of that time that prove Jesus was a real person. But they'll lower him to where, oh, he was just a good man. He was one of many prophets. He wasn't really God in the flesh. Red alert. They're not wearing that sign. They're not saying, hey, I'm coming in. With blazing saddles to, to, with false teaching. They're not doing that. But you need to realize, look at their sexual message, their standards. What are they saying about that? 
and their theology about Jesus. That's one of the first two things to notice. And when those don't line up, no matter what they say, mark it down. Something's not right. Okay? Now, what that means is, church, I'm still on the Paul's part here. What that means is you have to be comfortable looking a little old-fashioned. For instance, you, 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 are, you still believe that, that marriage is like one man and one woman? You believe that? Yes, I do. And that that man and that woman shouldn't have sexual relationships with anyone else? I do believe that. It's called monogamy, exclusivity in marriage. That's right. And you believe that that if until you're married, you should remain pure? I do believe that, yes. But Todd, nobody in our culture believes that. How do you know if it'll work? You should try it out. How do you know if marriage will fit you? And how do you know if she's going to be a good fit and he's going to be a good fit? All these. That's the culture that you're going to raise your kids in. That's the culture in which you're trying to have a a God-honoring, solid marriage. Now, I probably, um, I don't know if I face this issue more than you, but I think I have... I bear the brunt of this issue more than most of you because of my role here. And I've had people tell me, I mean, I've heard this on double-digit times. This is the phrase I hear. You still believe that? We could never come to your church. I mean, I hear that, and it will become more common. And so I'll, I'll be looked at as like kind of a fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned, stick-in-the-mud kind of pastor. You, you, get, you got my back, though, right? Okay, you're, you're right. You, you take care of me, right? I'm kind of kidding you there. My point is, though I might take the brunt of some of that because of people who visit or maybe people who know what we believe, the truth is you encounter those conversations at your work in the same level. Now, here's what I found. At that moment, the tendency is to make it, and I'm gonna, I need to say this the right way. The tendency is to make this about us and them and become very contentious in our contending. Would you agree with that? I mean, I can get there quick. All right? I can pull out the scriptures and man, I can debate and argue and and part of that I like even. And I find myself suddenly, oh, I'm to contend for the faith against those who've infiltrated at a deep level possibly. But I'm not to be contentious. In fact, scripture calls pastors to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. And doctrine. Does that make sense? So I have to watch myself at the end of verse 17, 18, that I don't become contentious in trying to obey what Jude calls me to do, to contend, right? And you too. But I need you to be aware that the end of this section, answering the why question, can can create feelings like, man, don't mess with our church. You want to come at people. You kind of want to take them head on. That's the exact wrong attitude and action we contend but how do we then contend well and this is what he does in the last part of the book because i think jude senses man he is ramped up right now and so he says in verse 17 but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ they said to you in the last time there'll be scoffers it is these who cause divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. In other words, 
you know, relax, first of all. This, uh, this was predicted. Now, not relax as if not to contend, but you're not the first to go through this, and this shouldn't really catch you off guard. We saw the storm clouds on the horizon. So knowing that, knowing that this is to be expected, he then gives, I think, some ways to to go about contending without being contentious. He says, first of all, and I would say there's three basic principles here. They involve God's love, God's mercy, and God's power. First of all, it says God's love. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So while those things are happening, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, here's what I think is so dramatically intriguing about this. Listen very carefully. There's very little about the previous verses that deal with God's love. Would you just admit that textually? When I read this, like, man, it sounds to me like it's all about the judgment of God. Wouldn't you say that? Like, man, he's going he's to have his day with them. But he's not asking us to keep ourselves in God's judgment. He's simply saying, once you let God take care of his role as judge, and you keep yourselves in his love. When we try to take the role of the judge, we will become contentious. But when we, by knowing truth, which is what building yourselves up refers to in your most holy faith, in other words, know God's truth, theologically understand what has been delivered to the saints. It's a reference back to verse 3. Know what it is that God has said, and then praying in the Holy Spirit. By the way, I think there are two things that could mean. I think it does mean that we pray that God will illuminate our minds to the truth that we are building ourselves up in. By the way, the Holy Spirit's your built-in commentator. Read, uh, was it, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he talks about the Holy Spirit will illuminate our minds. But it also means here, as Romans 8 talks about, praying in the Spirit. And at times when you're just not even sure of what to say, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. As we're learning truth and praying in the Spirit, God's love overwhelms us. Right theology, which is, is that God has acted on our behalf in Christ. That's His love for us. I think right theology and right worship, praying in the Holy Spirit, those two things will always lead to God's love for us. Does that make sense? As you think about what God has done for you, your theology, your doctrine of beliefs, what He says here, your most holy faith, when you think about all that God has done for you in Christ, and then... In the spirit, and you're praying, and you're worshiping God, that will lead to a place where you're like, wow, I can't believe God would, would, would rescue me like that. So I think there's a nice progression here. Know your doctrine, worship God in the Holy Spirit, pray to Him, and then that is the way that you keep yourselves in the love of God. While you're doing that, He says to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we're building, we're praying, we're waiting. While we're doing that, by focusing on what He's taught us and His Spirit, His mercy, He then says we're to have mercy on those who doubt. 
We're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And we're to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. So he moves from a, a, a focus on ourselves in God's love, being built up and in prayer to where like that now should affect how we treat other people. So here's the, 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 the principle of God's love is one of the ways we contend without being contentious. And then God's mercy is also how we contend without being contentious. God's mercy to other people. And by the way, I think they flow that way. One of the reasons we find it difficult, or perhaps you find it difficult, to be merciful, to be compassionate, is because you're not building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit and waiting for the mercy of God. All you want to do is be in the seat of that judge. Bring on the fire! That's what you're thinking. And you fail to realize that you really, if it weren't for God's mercy and His work on your behalf in Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit He's given you, you would be the very first one under that fire. I would be. And so we have to start by realizing, wow, what is it that, that God's Word says about how I'm reconciled and made right and preserved? Okay, so if that can happen to me, that can happen to others. So we stay in God's love, and then we show mercy to other people. Now, I think there's three kinds of people. Again, here's a set of three in the book of Jude. Look what he says. We're to have mercy on those who doubt. The word there is to test. The word doubt is. It means to kind of judge between things. I think this is your typical skeptic. You might could use the word confused. We're to have mercy on those people. We're to save others. This is a second group. And we're to snatch them out of the fire. It's almost as if they've almost, they're almost lost. They're almost too far gone. At the last minute, you snatch them out of the flames. But Jude does give the picture that you're... you're compassionate and merciful toward those who are debating things, to those who seem very convinced, you're still there reaching out, showing mercy. At the last minute, they may believe. Wouldn't that be great? And so you snatch them out of the fire. But even goes beyond that. He says here, and we're to show another type of uh, people mercy as well. Those who, who have their garments stained by the flesh, they're so embedded into the false teaching. And the word garment here means underclothes. And this is a pretty intense uh, picture. But he's saying their underclothes are stained by the false doctrine they hold so tightly to. That's how, how, uh, that's how they're wearing it. It's clinging so close that, man, their undergarments are stained with it. And yet he says here, look what he says, show mercy to them as well, but show you this mercy with fear. Be careful when you're in this environment that you're really close I mean, you're, you're in with people. You're among people who deeply are deeply committed to this false doctrine. But he doesn't say to those very people, good luck. He says we're to show mercy to them. There's a, there's a sense in Jude's mind, Jude's mind in which he says there's an interaction with all three types of people, those who are just still wondering and doubting, those who are pretty convinced and are headed that way, and then those who are really committed. But all of them need our mercy, our interaction. They don't need us to be contentious even though we're contending. Does that make sense, church? That's what's happening here. And so 
when you get through the verse 17 and 18, you're probably like me, like, man, bring it on. It's game time, right? But then Jude right away says, guys, listen, God will do the judging part. You keep yourselves in his love and then live a life of mercy regardless of the level of unbeliever you engage with. They need mercy, compassion. And what I think is interesting is that is one of the ways Jude says we're to contend. We're to hold the line, yes. We're to speak with clarity, but we're also to speak and act with compassion. He finishes up by showing well that all of this, of course, is possible through Jesus. And in verse 24, one of the greatest doxologies in all the Bible. And I love the very first phrase of this, don't you? Here's the power of God uh, working in tandem with the mercy of God and the love of God. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. What is stumbling? If you read the verses and the book, stumbling would mean someone who falls, who who thinks they're in, but they're not, and they're seduced by the selfish agendas of false teachers. He says, you know what, guys? And in one sense, he's almost saying this. When you're contending without being contentious, and you're doing what you can, you're showing mercy, trust that in the middle of that, God will bring you safely home. It's a, it's a, it's a note of confidence that rings out that really keeps the whole book in perspective, doesn't it? God's got this. He will take care of those teachers those false ones, and he will take care of you. So that's the book of Jude. It's a call for us to balance mission and mercy. It's a call for us to contend for the faith without being contentious. And I think he shows us how. The love of God, the mercy of God, and the power of God. Let's put it in a single sentence, can we? Here's basically what I think he's saying. Read with me, would you? I can contend for the truth with clarity and compassion because of God's character and conduct. Now, that last part may have caught you off guard. Really, Todd? I thought we were going to say I can contend with truth and clarity because, man, the chips are on the line or it's, it's game time. It's do or die. But the truth is the first three words of verse 24 bring me back to a great reality. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him. At the end of Jude's call to us to contend for the faith, who does he point our attention to? To Christ. And so we can contend for the truth with clarity and compassion because of God's character and conduct. He's been merciful to us. So guess what? We can be merciful to others. He will not let us stumble So we can engage these false teachers who've crept in unnoticed. We can engage them with compassion and mercy and yet clarity and truth. We can persevere because God's got us in His hand. All of these actions, they're not contingent upon anything naturally within you to do. Did you know that? They all stem from these phrases where he says, to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. Wait for God's mercy and trust in God's power. Every bit of our contending is sourced by God's character and conduct. That's encouraging, isn't it? 
And so when you watch the church and when you watch our culture and you watch society and you think, wow, there are some crazy beliefs out there. There's some wild doctrines. There is some loose living. Engage. Contend. You're right to do so. But remember that as you contend, do it while you're resting in God's love, showing God's mercy, and trusting His power. Otherwise, you'll contend for the faith and be contentious. And Jude's goal, thus God's goal for us because inspired by the Holy Spirit is to contend for the faith while at the same time showing mercy to those who may be on the edge, about to fall in, or who are just so, so committed they're even staining their undergarments with their false teaching. Engage. Converse. Interact. But in a way that shows God's mercy, God's power, and God's love. I'm praying that this week we can do that, all right? As we contend for the faith.